Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 12 of... Mastication Nation? That's the one, that's the one. Sorry, it's been it's been a while since I've had to say this, so I've had to dust off the old microphone a little bit. How are you? Will? Good. It's been it's been <laughs> six years uh, six years. Six weeks. Six years. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's been six weeks. It, six years. It's, yes, it's been I it's am. been a it's been a calendar year. Uh, we last it's recorded been, in two thousand seventeen and we now find ourselves gloriously into two thousand eighteen. This is true, this is true. Uh apologies, friends, for the break in publication but uh my daughter arrived very early and very spectacularly uh last month and so i haven't been doing anything really except focusing on the family so that is that is i posted this on twitter so i'm sure you all knew this but that is why we have had to take a break but she's fine mom is now fine and we're getting back on our feet and we wanted to get this thing back on the road as well so i'm glad that we can finally got an opportunity to do it yeah absolutely it's it's been a while to quote stained but i think that um it's fun because i got to step into to your shoes over at uh the the layovers podcast with with paul and uh that was awesome because i had no idea that you were doing it yeah and I got a notification on Overcast that a new episode of Layovers had launched. I was like, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> I th- and I so I thought Paul must have like put together a compilation of outtakes or something for for the holidays or whatever. But no, it was you, and you did a fantastic job. It was a great episode. Thank you, you thank you. He it. messaged me like a day before, and I was just like, "Oh crap, what do I talk about?" And I realized that I actually had uh, a few not as geeky in the news kind of um, stories as you guys, but I've done my fair share of stuff in the aviation industry. Yeah, I've forgotten about that, and I think you know you you told the stories uh, really well. They were very interesting, and the uh, our audience uh, really liked it. And in fact, a few people uh, suggested that there was a was it Ross Manson? I think might have suggested this that we do a mastication nation layovers crossover where we talk about. Airline food. I don't know, airline food or best food in airports. Actually, that's a good discussion to have because there's some pretty amazing and some pretty terrible airport food out there. And there's just but some I, that, really that, bad airplane uh, science out there. Like every like, – I, I don't know why I was talking about this, but we looked it up and I found three or four different articles all claiming that they knew – why things taste different, why you do or do not get drunk in planes, why this, why that. And none of them agreed with any of them. And I'm like, I know the science on this. I worked in the science in this. I know what's going on. So whether it's elf layovers on Mastication Nation or it's just a later episode on on, on layovers, uh, we'll figure it out. Well, we definitely should because there's so much to talk about there as well. And I just got off a plane this afternoon from Dubai, <laughs> so I've uh, <clears throat> I've got I've had that experience uh, fresh in my mouth, as it were, <laughs> um, <laughs> to talk about. Uh, but we definitely should do that. I think that would be a lot of fun. We have <clears throat> have Paul on this show, and then we'll go and we'll go and do one on layovers as well. But uh, here we are in well, gosh, it's almost the end of February. But uh, we'll we'll pick things up back back up more regularly, and we're we're on K, which we'll get to in a second. But uh, it's been as you said, more more than six weeks since we last recorded. You must have eaten some pretty amazing things since then. I have, I have, and I, I'm trying to remember all of them. But the thing that I've been eating recently, so uh, it was my birthday a couple of days ago, and um, happy birthday, thank you yeah, very much. Um, I've been trying to stay away from the bad stuff uh, during the month, uh, both food and alcohol wise. 
so that we can, so I can, you know, enjoy the birthday day, which was on Thursday. And then I went out again last night with some friends and, and, and like not feel guilty about what I was eating. So like sort of buffering my waistline a little bit, I guess. So one of the things I have been eating a lot of is cauliflower. And uh, mm. this will this will make sense in when we get into the episode as well. But um, one of the things I've been doing is cutting it up like a you know like a cross section of a brain, like you know the big steaks as it were, just by a head of a, a of cauliflower, cutting it up into into long you know thin chunks, and then roasting it super super fast with my favorite spice blend, which is Voudavan, which is sometimes known as French curry. So it's a, a cigar masala with some more traditional herbs from, you know, Herbe de Provence and vanilla flavors in there as well. And you just roast that off super hot and then a little bit of chili flake on top. And it's like a great substitute for potato, basically. And it's something that I've been eating probably three times a week. And it's just wow. my thing that I love. Must be pooping like a champ. <laughs> Cauliflower does good things for you. So, yeah, that's been probably the best thing I've been eating consistently since we last recorded yeah they they really are good uh and i think we we haven't really until very recently appreciated in the west how versatile the cauliflower is i mean it's such a staple of indian cooking that it's that you know and then they figured out that you can do pretty much anything to it uh and it still is a is a wonderful thing but we it's taken us ages to figure that Mm. out so I, i need to eat more cauliflower i love cauliflower and i like the steak thing I think I don't know I might be making up this memory but I think I see I saw a picture recently that maybe um Cobus Cobus I think posted something on Instagram recently with cauliflower that looked amazing as well so I need to eat more of that you know uh, I haven't traveled at all obviously for because babies I don't know if you guys know this are quite demanding <laughs> and <laughs> so I and my kids were on vacation until about halfway through last month so uh, I haven't traveled anywhere except for I went to Rome for literally for lunch. But as I said, I just got back from Dubai. And whenever I am in Dubai, I always make a point to do two things. One is to go to um, Burj Dubai, uh, old Dubai, essentially, Burj Amin area um, near Creek, if you know Dubai. Because new Dubai, it, while impressive as it is, is um, exhausting and tiresome after a while. But old Dubai is charming and fun and authentic and real, and uh, I love it there. I just love walking around the streets and talking to people. But there is a restaurant that my friend Arva took me to. She runs with her sister this wonderful company called uh, Frying Pan Adventures, which is a food tour. Actually, you can see her in our Dubai episode of Attaché. And she took me and my family to this place and I'd been there before as well, but now I go back every time. It's called Al Ustad Special Kebab. Nice. And it is an institution in Dubai. It's a family-run business. It's been around since 1978, I think. So it's a year older than I am. And it's Iranian yogurt kebabs. And it's just the most comforting home cooking. You know, you get the you know, the different types of kebabs. And they've got this like huge window along the, the street, along the sidewalk, where you can see them making them on the long silver mm-hmm. sword-like skewers. And they're so freaking friendly in there. And the guy, the, it's quite a sad story because the guy that ran it for, he, he came over from uh, Iran when he was 10 and ran the, you know, obviously ran this place since 1978. And he was like a local celebrity. And he died of old age about three or four years ago. And people were like, 
devastated. But I think it's his son that took over. His son is that looks looks like one of the Marx brothers, <laughs> but is just the most sweet and charming and wonderful guy. He welcomes you in off the street and he sits you down and gives you some some of this wonderful fresh home cooking. So I was in the ground in, in Dubai for a day, but I made it a point to go and pay my respects at this place and enjoy their wonderful food so that was easily the best thing i've eaten since we last recorded i thought you were gonna say um the little message you sent me yesterday which was i'm currently having breakfast with the west indian cricket team i thought you maybe was gonna throw (laughs) that in there they they uh they just happen to be staying in the uh, same hotel that i'm (laughs) staying in there's some big non-standard cricket meaning like you know what's the big bash league they have in india yeah 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 I you know not test cricket or one day like the 2020 or whatever tournament going on in Dubai at the moment we're about to start and so the West Indian cricket team were fueling up for their day's adventures alongside me <laughs> nice uh, <laughs> fueling up for my day's adventures but yeah I uh, I love that place the food is is always so good and comforting and and like ridiculously cheap Greg Greg Barnes Sir Greg Barnes has been there as well and we we loved it so yeah nice. easily the best thing I've eaten since. Since we last recorded. So uh, what are you drinking right now then? Well, I've given up the sauce for all of February. Okay. Uh, I, I, I was going to do dry January along with everybody else, but then my daughter was born and there was no freaking way I was going to get through the first couple of weeks of that without <laughs> a glass of wine at the end of the day. So I postponed it to February. <laughs> I had a rule where I, I'm allowed to drink when I travel, but I didn't really feel like it in, in Dubai, so I actually haven't. So I'm drinking my, one of my favorite things in the world which is arizona green tea they do this green tea with ginseng and honey bloody delicious i see that everywhere in america i didn't know they sold it in england yet you know where i get it the most of and i had to import it all the time is france it's all over france yeah. you can get it in car for everywhere very hard to get in england but i went to costco a couple of weeks ago and I, they had it and i think i bought most of them but the thing of, about it is it's uh it's only this whole thing is like um, just over 100 calories because it's sweetened with, with honey. And we all know everything about honey, folks, because <laughs> you listened to the honey episode already. Um, in America, you can only get the gigantic cans of it. Yeah. You can't get this sensibly sized 500 milliliter bottle. You have to get the six and a half gallon drum of it. That is just too much. But I love this stuff. I absolutely friggin' love it. So this might be the first ever, or well, is the first ever dry episode of Mastication Nation. Because I know, prepare be very dull episode. Because <laughs> I'm drinking Diet Coke. Because probably in the last four to five days, I've drunk. I, I have consumed my own body weight in whiskey. So you know, we were originally planning on on recording on Friday because I had the day off and. Uh, luckily, Alex said, "Hey, you know, can't can't record on fr- Friday. Let's do Monday." I was broken as well on on Friday, oh, so I don't no. know if we would have made the recording anyway. But what I've been drinking is a couple different things. I had the ten year McKenna bourbon, which is lovely, too easy to drink. Then I bought the um, 1792 small batch bourbon with a port finish, which is lovely. So it's been aged in a port barrel, uh, and that's what I'm working my way through uh, right now. And but then last night I posted on my Instagram. Um, yeah, yeah. What is this thing? It's made by St. George, which is a local, fairly well-known uh, liquor company in the East Bay. And you can find it almost 
anywhere on the West Coast now, I think, maybe even internationally. And they originally did gin, and they are inspired by the British style of, like, uh, you know, alcohol creation, hence the St. George. But obviously, Japanese whiskey, and that's something we could both talk about in depth for an entire episode about, has become super uh, fashionable. And um, so these guys decided to do a Japanese-style whiskey made with British malt in finished in a I, I don't remember the name of the Japanese um, drink um, but it's peach drink and so it was, it was a, a, a aged in a, in a peach barrel or peach alcohol uh, whatever the wine is soju whatever it is um, so it was very very interesting and I got to try that last night at, my, at uh, Keith's uh, place Rambler so um, we went out to dinner there last night and that was that was good but let's just say you know I'm I'm back off the sauce for the rest of the month until <laughs> until March starts again we're both well. Yeah, we'll probably get another episode in this month, and then it'll be back to uh, yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of which, that gives us a nice, uh, you know, he- what's what I'm looking for leadway because um, we were going through the twitters after our last account, uh, our last posting, and Greg McCormick at Glenn Africk Craig. I uh, was talking about, I was tweeting, I've been full on binging the Mastication Nation podcast today while brewing. I now want avocado toast, burger, dim sum, and falafel. And I said, please don't do all those together. Uh, and I looked up Craig. Um, Craig is the co-founder and head brewer at Glen Afric Brew. And so, Glenn, uh, Craig, we do enjoy beer, and I do talk about beer a lot. So if you do want to send us some samples, I mean, I know we're a little closer to Alex than you are to, to, to me, but uh, hint, hint. <laughs> yeah, Craig, Craig is, a, is a great guy, and he's also a gifted photographer whose uh, work you will see in the uh, very soon-to-be-released attache book. Nice. Yeah, he has um, got a, a great eye, and yeah, the story of of, of his brewing efforts uh, with, that he's doing with his brother is fantastic. In fact, we should have Craig on the show at some point because it's uh, it's one of those things where he just said, you know, screw this, I want to I want to do something I'm passionate about, which is which is brewing. Um, I think they're rolling stuff off the line uh, at the moment. I I, I I think that's what they said. Uh, and I'm very keen to sample it as well. Yeah, you're a little. I know that he's a. You can go up there and do, a, and do a a tour, and I I'll just have yeah. To they're listen. they're they're near. Uh, they're in Liverpool. Oh, okay. They're just still. Yeah, they got a. Um, so yeah, definitely that. And <laughs> that was a very kind tweet for him to to say as well. Yeah. Uh, well, jumping into uh, some of the other feedback we've had since the last episode, uh, our good friend Joel, who has been tweeting at us since almost episode one, um, who is in Perth. He mentioned that, and this was so strange, it just came up in my in my feed, that In-N-Out had a pop-up in Perth. And he said, In-N-Out opened a pop-up in Perth today. It was everything I imagined except the fries. They couldn't import them due to custom regulations. So, Joel, real quick, uh, that's the only thing that's not very good about um, In-N-Out is their base-level fries. That's why you know, animal fries, um, animal-style fries make it worth the you know going um i see that you got like i think it's potato chips or crisps as the rest of the world calls it um alongside your burger but it looks like you got a a good looking burger there and it's so strange i wonder why they're doing this alex did you hear anything about this like why they're popping up in random places no because it goes kind of against their ethos of uh having everything a day shipment away nothing is ever frozen and actually you know chips fries whatever you want to call them are different uh whether they're better or not is up. I think up to one's own taste, but 
they are, they, you know, they get a bunch of potatoes to the restaurant and you can watch them actually turn them into fries and then dump them in the thing. So they, they're unbelievably fresh and they're, they're cooked slightly differently. So mm. they do have a, a different flavor. They use much less salt than somewhere like a Five Guys, which you need a gallon of water every time you drink, you have some of their fries. Well, this kind of nicely brings us into the other news that came out about In and Out in January, I think it was, um, where Glassdoor, who is the, you know, employment search slash review website, um, they, they ranked all the best companies in the US um, based on job satisfaction and, and, you know, a number of different factors. And In-N-Out came number four in the entire country, beating out the likes of Google, LinkedIn, and Salesforce, which is something that we knew here because the, the, the ethos around in and out is legendary but for those that don't know it is a company that has always well before uh legislation paid their uh, employees a livable wage had health care had benefits um you know really prided themselves on a, a good work environment um the thing that i found shocking but not unreasonable was the amount that the managers were making did you see this I did. It was an extraordinary amount of money. Yeah, it was in one hundred and sixty thousand bucks on average. One hundred and sixty thousand dollars. But but and, and a lot of people were butthurt about this, and they're like, "Oh, they just flip burgers," and that's just snobbish mm-hmm. and misinformed, and fundamentally un- does not understand the economics at play here. Consider how much revenue that person is responsible for. Mm-hmm. Consider the average daily take of an in and out. Yeah. And then times that by however you want to measure that person's salary. It's a fraction of the revenue that the store that they are responsible for generates. It, you know, and it's there's not a lot of other people that can say that uh, as well. So I read some some horrible comments from people who were like, "Oh, this is this is bad." You know, teachers should be paid more. You know, teachers do a very very important job. Who you know, their value is measureless. Blah 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 blah. But they don't make. <laughs> Ten to fifteen million dollars in revenue a year yeah. per store. Yeah, and it's um, not like they're screwing the other employees down the food chain to use a terrible pun to pay them that that one hundred sixty thousand dollars. Like I mentioned, the the entire workforce is considered to be the most you know appreciated in in their field. So you know they get their they get their. Um, base salary they get their benefits they get their this they get their that and so uh, overall it's just a fantastic story that's come out and really understands you can be ethically uh, a decent ethical fast food company and not screw over your employees at the same time i think that's absolutely true you look at somewhere like costco which has a very similar ethos and when you look after your employees they that is reflected in the service they deliver to their customers. Mm-hmm. It'll come through on the front lines to the to the interactions with the customers. Absolutely. Um, so Absolutely. one of the this this next one makes me incredibly proud and a little sick to be to be half British. Listener Matthew CT at Matt five six seven eight tweeted this to us. Um, said this has to be one for Mastication Nation, and it says uh, Morning Morrison's has launched a Yorkshire pudding pizza. That is all. And I look at it, and it's like I. At first, I saw the photo and I thought, um, oh, wait, there's a photo. <gasps> there is a photo. <laughs> I thought there was, I thought it was a deep dish pizza. I didn't look at the the, the text to start with because that's what it kind of looks like. It looks like a really poorly done deep dish pizza, but it's a giant Yorkshire pudding, probably, you know, five inches across that they've just filled with pizza filling. And then on the chopping board is also 
a piping hot cup of gravy because that's just <laughs> Morrison's yeah, gravy. Exactly. Uh, thoughts? Is this an abomination unto the Lord? I, I'm I'm trying to imagine how that would taste. Yeah. Uh, I think it would be disappointing. Exactly. Why Why try and reinvent the wheel here? Um, just do deep dish pizza. I mean, not that. Or do Yorkshire puddings. They're both wonderful. Things. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and then, and then, lastly, uh, going back to our last episode, which was on on, on jam and all things uh, fruit preserve, pimp my dipper, um, otherwise known as ah uh, yeah Ben, otherwise known as uh, sour. You keep on changing your name, Ben, because sometimes it's sour tile failure, sometimes it's something else. I don't know what it is today, but um, you, you you tweeted at us uh, saying that I effed up so badly. Was listening to the folks on Mastication Nation talking about staying away from bubbling and hairy preserves, and it struck me. My beautiful toms are fighting back. Another inglorious food moment. Uh, and he oh, had posted no. uh, a step-by-step of him trying to make uh, like it looked like a sun-dried tomato jam, and uh, the last post was a video of his mason jar bubbling away, and uh, it looks like some some yeast may have got in there. And uh, I think I think the most important thing for you to do is dispose of that in, in, a, in a safe and uh, contaminated for, contaminated free manner. There, uh, oh no, <laughs> some sort of biological weapon. But let us know if you were able to, to isolate the issue and 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 actually make it, um, and how you're making it, because if you're just preserving the, the the tomatoes that's that's good but i mean obviously we talked about it without pectin it's not really jam but yeah love to know more about like your your adventures in jam as well well you know keep on sending those inf- those tweets in those facebook uh messages feel free to uh, write us a review when you get a chance on whatever platform you're listening to us it helps us find people uh find new new audiences so uh thanks for all your feedback however we are here we are talking about the letter k and i joked that if uh k was for the actual thing that we're going to be talking about i wasn't going to do this episode <laughs> however uh i i uh, i i dug into it a little bit more and kale is a fascinating thing kale is a fascinating thing and uh, we ha- we'll talk about it a little bit later, but there's a reason why why I wanted to do this particular food stuff, uh, uh, as it were. Not just because it was a convenient letter K. There's many other things that we could have picked up uh, to to do. None of which I can think of right now. But, um. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The K K was just it's one of those ones that it'll have people divided in the street, and hopefully we could you know use this episode um, with a little bit of expertise. Uh, from outside the two of us to sort of unite some warring factions between, you know, the, yeah, the vegan populations. Yeah, you're right. It, it's, it's one of those foods that has a much or provokes a much more visceral response than it perhaps warrants. Yeah, and I think that quite nicely <laughs> leads into the fact that kale is and is part of, and I will argue anyone on the street on this, it is the most interesting concept and most interesting uh what's the word i'm looking for ramifications of genetic modification that we've ever had in human society and uh, that's a big yeah. statement but like all these people are like oh, i hate gm i hate gm well you don't know what you're talking about because yeah yes because basically kale is a member of the brassica family and the brassica family also, and this all comes back to one mother plant hundreds of thousands of years ago is now responsible for Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, broccoli, cabbage, bok choy, 
broccolini, kale, collard greens. Uh, I, the list can go on. And they all mm. come back to these original plants and, and, and sort of the, your collards and your, and your kale were the, sort of the originals and everything else was spun off and genetically modified through, through, um, you know, grafting and selecting traits that people liked all over, uh, Europe and then across the world over hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, Brussels sprouts have only been around 500 years, but like, you know, that, that, all came back to one family and it's crazy how important this one arm of the green vegetative world is um specifically kale is part of the acephala group which means um headless because it's unlike a broccoli or cabbage which has a head um so you've got your collards and your your um kales and your uh, mature mustard greens and so on and so forth which are part of that that group um you're very yeah. dark kale break. is often called leafy cabbage yeah it, it or, or curly cabbage um it's mm. it's your dark sort of synonymously associated with um composty smell you know greens but oh it smells like ass but we're here we're here to dispel with some some poor science some poor um cooking technique um, yeah. And to make sure that people understand why they're getting some some poor results, it's been quite extraordinary because it's one of those things that's been just absolutely catapulted into the zeitgeist, and then had the crap kicked out of it. Yeah, uh, it's a little, a little unfair. Like the, the redheaded stepchild that didn't want to be in the, on, on front of stage is now getting tomatoes thrown at it because because uh, everyone thinks it's not very good at what it does, but no one's ever seen its true chal- true talents. Yeah. Um, but yeah, with that being absolutely. said, someone who can help us sort of understand its, its providence and its uh, its importance, both historically and culinarily, is a is a friend of yours, Alex. Yeah, yeah, Asmus Jensen. He's uh, a fantastic guy who I met in Copenhagen when we were filming our Copenhagen uh, episode of Attaché. He's a a food historian and and very much more than that, and he, he's an expert on on a few things, including cabbage and kale. And I really wanted him to come along and and help us set these these kale wrongs right. So uh, I had a, I had a chat with, with Asmus a, a day or two ago. Hey, Asmus, welcome to Mastication Nation. Thank you very much for taking the time to be here with us. Thank you. I, I want to tell the story about how, how I know you, how we met. We, we both know uh, uh, Phil Chambers, who's a friend of the show, uh, who lives... Technically lives in Copenhagen, but never seems to be there, which is, you're based in Copenhagen, <laughs> right? Yeah, I am, yeah. Yeah, it's a lovely city. And when we filmed the attache in Copenhagen, Phil suggested that uh, that I speak to you because not only uh, are you a big fan of food, but you're actually, you're a food historian, right? I am, yeah. What, what does that actually mean? What is a food historian? Well, to be honest, it doesn't really exist Uh, (laughs) (laughs) the best jobs are the ones you can make up it's sort of a title invented by journalists because it makes it much easier but but basically i'm i'm educated uh, as a historian specialized in food culture and then then actually i'm specialized in cheese and cabbage and uh, sour cherries and so so (laughs) that's uh, quite an eclectic mix and one of those obviously we're going to be spending a little bit of time on but we we met uh in in Torfall, and I'm I'm sure I pronounced that incorrectly, yeah. but um, and you gave us this wonderful education on on the schmorbread, this wonderful rye. It's usually rye bread, isn't it? The uh, yeah, usually rye bread, open sandwich style, decorated. Yes. 
so good. And this this place that we went to had the most extraordinary variations of the uh, of smorbid, which is which is wonderful. But I, one of the highlights for me of that moment was when somebody came up to you and and was like starstruck and wanted to have their their picture taken with you. Why was that? Yeah, that was actually that was another a turn. I did a, a TV program on African cuisine, traveling to six different African countries and looking into what's actually happening on the different uh, gastronomical scenes right now in Africa. So she obviously saw the programs and she uh, luckily she liked them. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's that is very cool. So not only are you, uh, are you a food historian, uh, you're also a, a TV star. And we, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was that was a cool moment. But the, what was funny is right before we were coming out to meet you, when we were staying with Phil, and in his kitchen he's got the because Phil likes to cook as well, and he has all these wonderful cookbooks. And I grabbed one, and it was mm-hmm. this beautiful, hardbound, high quality. It was in Danish, so I couldn't actually tell if the words were good, but I assumed that they were amazing. But the photography was beautiful it was all put together and it was a book on 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 kale and cabbage and you wrote it you, did, you yeah. literally yeah. wrote the book on on kale and cabbage Two, 272 pages book on on cabbage who would have thought wow that's incredible and you you told me the three that you get sour cherries cheese and 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 cabbage why those three what what fascinates you about those three um i guess the stories are are both very different and very similar in the sense that the i guess the story of of if we take sour cherries and cheese they have that in common that it changes really a lot throughout the ninth uh, the the 20th century in the sense that it it goes from something uh, that had a, has a lot of uh, variations depending on where you are in in denmark and then through the 20th century you sort of get to a point where it's all kind of industrialized and it's the same types you eat all over the country. So that process is the same. When it comes to kale and cabbage, the story is a little bit different because kale is probably in Denmark historically the most important vegetables. Really? And, 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 and when something is that important, then it's in many different ways reflected in culture in general and in history in general. So that's why kale is really, really interesting to look at as a historian. So, so kale is a big—is it a big part of the Danish diet, or has just has played a big part in in Danish food history? Uh, kind of the same, I would say both. Ah, okay. Uh, in the sense that it's it's definitely kale was more important historically than it is today, but it is still a, a big element. But well, to start from the beginning. Uh, kale has this very, very important quality uh, that made it the most important vegetable when we go back in time, and that is that it's frost tolerant. So, uh, uh. in a in a time before uh, supermarkets with uh, imported vegetables and electricity for for uh, refrigerated uh, storage and so on. It was extremely important that you could actually just walk into your garden and although there was uh, snow and on top of the, the kale, you could pick it and eat it fresh. So it was a, it was a way of surviving through wintertime uh, in old days. So that made it extremely important up here in the north where, where, where the winter <laughs> isn't that funny. So 
that's pretty extraordinary that it's so hardy. Is there anything specific about kale that is that allows it to do that, to, to be so robust and, and survive frost? Mm, you could say, uh, to be honest, I don't know the, the exact components that made, make this possible, but it's, it's the same with different types of, of varieties of kale. Like you have this uh, Tuscan black kale. It has the same mm-hmm. kind of qualities. So you have these, and it's actually the same with the Brussels sprouts as well, that it can, uh, okay. it can manage through wintertime, yeah. Wow, that's I had absolutely no idea. I mean, it's kale in in I guess, and this is from an outsider's perspective. Kale seems to be one of those things that has become immensely popular almost overnight. But it's it's probably taken about ten years to to become part of the zeitgeist once again. Did it did it ever really go out of fashion in in Denmark, or are you experiencing the same thing where it's suddenly very popular because of of perceived health benefits, which we can we talk about in a minute? I would say that it's it's suddenly very popular again uh, mm. because you had a, a period in in the middle of the the twentieth century where it, its reputation wasn't really good, uh, and I guess that was probably connected to how we how we we cooked it. Like we overcooked right. it basically. So, so, and it was, it was something that's sort of, it had a reputation of being a kind of for, for poor people, uh, so to speak, that it wasn't, it wasn't anything attractive. Uh, so I, I, th- I think it has, I think you're right that it's connected to, it's both connected to the health benefits, but it's also connected to this whole Nordic movement that's interested in, in looking at the roots of our food culture and what grows yeah. in our region in a very natural way. That's interesting because obviously Danish culture and and Northern European culture in general seems to be incredibly in vogue in the West as it is with all of these these comfort concepts and ways of living as well as, you know, I mean, Noma obviously is the, is the standard bearer for uh, – locally sourced seasonal uh you know literally the best in the world cuisine so does, are, are you saying that perhaps there's this this global f- interest or re, re resurgence in interest in in kale might be because of there's there's a, a northern european um kind of rekindling of that romance i think the i think the global interest in kale has a lot to do with the health benefits but I think in a Danish uh, Scandinavian context, it makes even more sense because it's also linked to our history, our gastronomical history, and it's and it's local, so, and it's very local. Yeah, okay, definitely. And so the the, pers- the the health benefits are fascinating to me because it's everywhere. You can't move, especially in places like where I'm from, California, and especially where my brother lives in California. Uh, who also does the show with me uh, is it's everywhere. You can get it added to anything. You can get it just about any restaurant, and it's supposed to be this "quote unquote" superfood. But what what are the supposed health benefits of of kale, and is it as powerful and wonderful as we are made to believe? Well, if if I'm to look at it as a historian, uh, it's very interesting to see that. All these elements that we scientifically today point at as as kale has these qualities, when we look at it historically, it's basically the same things that they believe even, let's say, 500 years ago, 
the qualities they believe it to have. It just, it wasn't, they didn't put it in a very scientific language, right. but they had this experience that it could, it could help in so many different ways. It could be, a, a, you could say, a, a protection against disease if you ate it at certain times a year. So if you ate it around Easter time, you would sort of protect yourself from different types of disease all through the year. Uh, and it could be, it could be any, anything basically. Like you could eat the seeds, it will help you. Uh, it, you would have, if you had, if you were using glasses, it will help your, your what do you call that vision? Right. Or, um, so it had this, there's so many different qualities that's sort of similar that you always believed it to have. Um, yeah. And so is that, is that, are they true? Is that, have they actually been shown to have these health benefits or, or have we dismissed a few of them as, you know, carrots giving you good eyesight type of thing? I think, I think we shouldn't uh, neglect the fact that they in, in historically had a, a more uh, experience based uh, relation to what they ate. Oh, that's a great so, point. Uh, so I think I think that's I think that's an important point for me, uh, and now the the scientific research sort of backs backs that, or you can see that it has, it uh, yeah the, the scientific research today sort of shows that that there was something about it. That's yeah, and it, that's a really interesting point. I had never considered the fact that you know yes they may not have have said it in a in a scientific way nor had the ability to prove the efficacy or the healthfulness of a, a of a food or an ingredient um, back then but they certainly knew and had a very close relationship with the food so they could see what worked and and it may have been coincidence but more often than not it probably wasn't i I'd, I'd never thought of it in those terms um, it's 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 interesting to to look back sometimes because it's a challenge often when you read these uh, these old texts that the language it's it's not convincing to uh, to a modern day uh, very logical rational mind mm. but if you sort of look through the language and look at what they actually describe it's it seems to kind of be the same sometimes as modern science right that's interesting so they're they're drawing the same conclusions they're just saying it differently and perhaps arrived at those conclusions in a different manner, but ultimately they're saying the same thing. Yeah, I would say at times, yeah, you could say that. That's funny. And it makes, again, it makes it makes a lot of sense as well. I mean, I think that there's a lot to be said about the fact that it's so hardy uh, as a plant, you know, growing and can sustain, um, you know, itself through those winters. But mm. I, what I think is funny about kale, and actually it's one of the reasons why we picked it for this uh, episode, is that because of the health benefits that are so widely uh, touted and are so popular, people eat it uh, in abundance. They put it in their smoothies. They have it as a side dish. They're, they're, and I'd like to talk a little bit later about the best and worst ways to prepare kale. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it also has this reputation in, in the modern world of not tasting very good. Is that Going back to a point you touched on earlier, is that because we we don't know how to cook it? Yeah, basically, I would say so. Yeah, basically, we we had a tradition for overcooking it. Uh, so, so I would say so. Yeah. So, overcooking it. I mean, what was the traditional way of preparing kale up until like twenty years ago? Was you just boil the hell out of it? So, yeah, basically. But historically, especially one way of cooking has been completely dominating. Uh, and that is as a kind of uh, kale soup. And 
And to understand why we cooked it like that, we sort of have to understand a bit of the, the history of cooking technology because the stove wasn't invented until mid-19th century. So before that, you were cooking on open fire, often in a, in a, in a big pot. So roughly speaking, that meant that you, you put all the ingredients in one pot and then you, you boiled it, basically. So different varieties of soup were really dominating and kale soup was would sort of be the logical solution because it was there and it was abundant and it was yeah. available in the winter was, so yeah. so you the standard uh dish was was soup and you or, or stew or whatever and you would make you would make that stew with whatever you could get your hands on at that time of year and during the winter it was kale because it was hearty yeah but but it has it has a f- particular flavor and smell to it that's quite uh it's 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 bitter it's bitter yeah um, and it and it has definitely been even much more bitter like uh, it's it's sort of a if you look at the history of a lot of different types of vegetables they have been probably all of them much more bitter in old days in old times because basically they have been grown into being more sweet than they were really yeah. So 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 we've we've made a concerted effort to try and remove that bitterness. Yeah. And that's sort of that's what links all of these different things that I'm interested in that that's the same movement you see throughout the 20th century in general that you sort of you you turn the 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 types of vegetables in in a certain a bit more sweet direction. Okay. So I, that's interesting. And that's done through uh, how do you how would you do that? Yeah, that's done through research and uh, development, basically. Uh, so, so it's done at a genetic level, then. Yeah. Uh, okay, I see. Uh, so, if if we were cooking, so obviously putting it in a stew is not the best way to do it now. At, at a base, in the most basic and simple way, what is the best way to prepare it if it's just going to be by itself? Well, by its, you need to. If you, if you want to cook it, you need to cook it in, in hard boiling water and short time, basically. Okay. Uh, so not too much. And then either you can also like put it in, in the oven or bake it in different ways. But so you can bake it? You can bake it, yeah. Okay. That's so, sort of so, a kind of a thing right now in Denmark as well. And how, what do you just, you just literally throw it in the oven? Yeah, basically, yeah, with some wow. salt. The only times that I've had it, I've I've seen it in the store, and it's you know obviously it comes in uh, you know, raw, uh, mm. like like, a, like a, a other leafy vegetables. Can you eat it raw? You can eat it raw, yeah. Uh, Is it? Do you, your hesitation makes me think that it's probably not a good idea, though. I think I for me it's more interesting when it's cooked in in some way or another. But actually, you have a saying that's kind of interesting. Uh, and this saying goes, I mean, way back to Roman times, uh, that if you eat raw kale before you go drinking, then you don't get as drunk as you would have. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. that's a that's a good tip. I will try that tonight. Yeah, you should try it tonight. Yeah, eat a bunch of raw kale and then see how crappy I feel at the end of it. I can only <laughs> advise you to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, that's a, I had no idea. I wonder what the what the what the history. So many of these wonderful old wives' tales that about, especially about food, uh, are fascinating in that 
a surprising amount of them have a little bit of science behind them. There's something, there's some enzyme or there's some, you know, chemical element of the, uh, of the ingredient that does something to perhaps offset, you know, how badly f you feel or the uptake of alcohol. I, yeah. I love that stuff. Yeah. Me um, too. So you can, especially in California and I'm sure in London and, and I'm sure in Copenhagen as well, you can go to these, these quote unquote health food places and get a smoothie that's loaded with kale. Are they, are they using raw or will have that, will they have cooked it beforehand? I would imagine they cooked it beforehand, but to be honest, uh, I don't eat a lot of, uh, kale smoothies. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know many people that do, but yet it seems everywhere. And again, I think it's because, you know, we, we have, convinced ourselves of these super food properties and think that, okay, we'll, we'll just throw it into the, to the mix with all of the other things that we've convinced ourselves are, yeah. are healthy as well. Yeah, exactly. But it sounds like it would be pretty bitter if you didn't cook it before. Yeah, I agree. So the basic preparation would be just boiling it, but not for too long. Yeah. Um, what happens if you boil it too long? Then it's just, it's the, the taste is a bit, uh, I don't know how to describe it uh, <laughs> as kale smells or, I mean, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit heavy. It's a bit too sweet. Uh, and and kale does have this very particular smell as well. Yeah. That uh, and I think that that again, that's kind of what initially puts people off is they they smell it or they or they they smell uh, you know it being prepared and go and it smells gross. It smells <laughs> like 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 dirt or you know manure or something. It's it sounds awful, but that. It, and this it this smell would be dominating in the taste if you overcook it. Ah, so that makes total sense then, because when you smell it, it does it does smell like it just smells gross. Mm. It's 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 awful. And so if you, so many people perhaps are associating they're overcooking it, and then you know they're getting that flavor coming through as well, and going, "No, this is gross." Yeah. But yet they're doing this this vegetable a huge huge disservice. That's okay. So we've basically unlocked the key to kale here that if you overcook it, it's going to taste like it smells, which isn't good. And also to not let the smell put you off because it doesn't transfer. Yeah. So what is your favorite way to prepare kale or to enjoy kale? Well, as a historian, I have to say as, as a kale soup. Uh, yeah. And that is, I think, both as a historian and uh, <laughs> personally as well. I prefer the so kale how do you? How do you balance, you know, soup needs a while to cook and prepare. How do you balance that with not cooking the, the kale for too long? Do you cook it beforehand and then add it to the soup at the end? Yeah, you could say that. And then you, you, I mean, you, you need to keep the, the temperature high in the water. So it needs to boil a lot. Okay, I see. And uh, what, what else goes in a kale stew or is it literally just kale? Yeah, you could, you could mix it with the cream and the salt, pepper, uh -huh. of course, uh, but kale is the base. You're not adding any kind of, you know. Kale would be the base, yeah. Okay, wow. Uh, cream and, yep, cream and salt, that sounds good to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what was interesting to me is that cabbage and and and, and kale and or, or, or leafy cabbage, as I was flicking through your book, I saw the, all these wonderful different ways of preparing it. And then as I was researching this episode, I found a bunch of different ways as well to prepare kale that I was, I had no idea that it was so versatile and so adaptable. And one of the ones I saw in a health food store was uh, chocolate covered kale. 
<laughs> which I had to try, of course. Yeah. So, and I, what they, I guess they baked it or, or you know, air dried it or, or dehydrated yeah. it perhaps. And then they um, covered it in chocolate and the bitterness came mm-hmm. through, but in a really pleasant way be- because it was obviously offset by the sweetness of the yeah. chocolate. So it was, it was nice. It was crunchy. It was uh, really satisfying. And when you look at the back of the packet, the numbers, the nutritional numbers were surprisingly good. I mean, I know that, that, that kale is, you know, obviously it's very, it's going to be good for you, but it boosted some of the, you know, um, protein and iron and all of these other wonderful things that actually made it chocolate covered kale are really good. And, you know, a a snack that you could eat and not hate yourself afterwards. It sounds like a crazy dish. I have to be honest, I haven't tried it. You got to try it, man. I mean, it was, uh, it's not something that I would go out uh, every day. And, you know, if you like dark chocolate, you'll love it because you get the bitterness of, of the kale kind of simulating the the dark chocolate bitterness. But I, I was amazed. I had never, you know, and I think maybe a lot of people listening to this will be this, of the same uh, same same mind that kale was a, a a vegetable that had always been prepared as a side dish. It was green. It was overcooked, and that was the only way. Maybe you could saute it, perhaps. I don't know. But that was it. I had no idea that it could be used in so many so many different I think ways. It's actually interesting often to to start that makes sense in many different ways to start with the vegetables and then add the meat and you could do the same thing with all these different types of cabbage and especially kale as well yeah i i think so too and you know once you have unlocked its flavor its actual flavor not the overcooked kind of bitterness and and or, or the other you know less attractive components that you mentioned earlier then you can figure out what to pair it with. I mean, isn't isn't a New Year's uh, New Year's Eve or New Year's Day meal in Denmark like uh, ham and potatoes and, and that would kale? be yeah the Christmas uh, meal traditionally also the New Year kale traditionally well basically all of the festivities if you look at it traditionally in Denmark would have kale yeah <laughs> so, really and that's that's always been the case. yeah that has been the case for I would say yeah many 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 hundred years so that's nice though i mean i think we have the same relationship here in in the uk and to a lesser extent in the us with with brussels sprouts again and i think a lot of people dismiss those because they've had them prepared incorrectly yeah you're right that's actually my favorite type of cabbage to be honest i love them i love them and we've said many times on this show that if you don't like brussels sprouts it just means you haven't had them prepared properly. Mm. And it sounds like it's the same way with, with kale. Yeah, definitely. And it's the same I mean, thing again. You have to cook it short time, I would say. Yeah, and again, it, it's, you know, I never thought about um, roasting Brussels sprouts until I tried it. No. <laughs> and they're <laughs> wonderful. I, mean, I think that's really the only way I do it now. Yeah. But um, – I just had no idea, and I think I, sh- I should have figured that out because it's it's a cabbage. It, kale is a cabbage. Brussels sprouts are, are a cabbage derivative. For me, my my favorite way of of enjoying kale is the um, Portuguese soup, the caldo mm. verde. Yeah. I think maybe because it's got a bunch of sausage and stuff in it. <laughs> <laughs> but the diced kale uh, and the potatoes and all of that, I think that that all works really really well. Yeah. Um, I completely but agree. But now I'm going to be more more uh, adventurous. Yeah. Actually, when I think about it, there is there is more to talk about with my uh, favorite type of cooking, kale. Because 
kale has a big tradition of being connected together with pork as well when it comes ah. to Danish history. So you often when you cook this kale soup, you would very often have a, a type of pork meat to cook together with that. And in Danish history, the pork meat would very often be smoked. So this smoked taste coming together with with a kale uh, soup kind of thing works really, really well. Ah, okay. That's fascinating. I mean, it, what's interesting is that you look through the historical applications throughout Europe, in the Netherlands and Portugal, like I just mentioned, Italy, uh, all the way over here, Scotland, Ireland, Turkey. They almost always seem to do exactly the same thing. Mm. Maybe not smoked, but it's almost always pork. Yeah. That, that's that's fascinating. Like So in the Netherlands, I think they do that. Obviously in Denmark, like you just said, Portugal, I just mentioned this sausage. I think in uh, in the Balkans, they do it with uh, with mutton, with, but it's smoked mm. mutton. Yeah, okay. So that uh, that's fascinating. There is something with, I'm gonna with try that. pork and cabbage that really works. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in Scotland, it's so ingrained in the, in the culture that when you say, uh, when there's a way of saying, I, I feel too, too uh, sick to eat. And it's that you are, you're off, off your kale. Mm. <laughs> uh, and so it's so, it's so synonymous with food, yeah. which I, which I rather like, but I'm going to try that. I'm going to get some, something smoked and I'm going to enjoy it with some kale. There's actually, there is one thing I would like to add to this uh, European uh, discussion about kale and cabbage. There is a, a theory saying that if you look at a historical map of Europe showing kale and then the tradition of sauerkraut, you know, the, the fermented ah, white cabbage, okay. then you could yeah. sort of see kind of a division. In the regions where you have a lot of kale, you don't have the same big traditions for sauerkraut, uh, meaning that in these regions, kale was a way of surviving through wintertime. And the other regions where you had a big tradition for sauerkraut, this was sort of their type of kale, so to speak. That was their fermented product that could keep through winter time. I see. But do you have a do you have a anything in in Denmark and Northern Europe that's also fermented or, or we do also have some sort of... sort of sauerkraut traditions. It's just not nearly as strong at it, at it as it is uh, south of the border uh, in the northern Europe in general. You had you had kale which would last you through the winter and and they perhaps didn't or it wasn't as prevalent so they relied on preserving things in the the better seasons the better growing seasons that would last them through the winter yeah and and we definitely also did that i mean basically if you look at historical food culture you can sort of divide it into two seasons that's not correct but that's as i see it anyway that one season was the time where you had so many different types of vegetables and meat and then that was of course the summertime and that period was just about actually getting through the winter time. So you, you, you were preserving all these things from the summertime in many different ways to get through winter time. Which makes sense. It makes yeah. absolute sense. As you said, there was, there was no way to preserve or keep food fresh for those or even grow yeah. it. Exactly. Um, uh, as well. Well, kale. Wow. I mean, one of those things that's, again, this is why we picked it for this episode. It's got such a bad reputation because people have had it prepared incorrectly it's like the 21st century brussels brussels sprout and that's yeah. kind of what we want to do in this show is is to get people to give certain foods a second chance or or at least explain a little bit more about them or at least find out more about them so thank you so much for your time man thank you very much so there we go no, that's awesome like i 
it's something that I've always wanted to know more about and knowing that there's somebody out there who's dedicated themselves to, amongst other things, kale, uh, <laughs> it shows that you can yeah. make a living out and, of anything. And I, and I think, you know, you, you and I talk so much about about food, obviously, on this food podcast, but food history is something that I think doesn't get enough attention at all anyway, yeah. understanding the provenance of the ingredients and, uh, you know, all of the stuff that, that Asmus mentioned about uh, it being so important, almost at a strategic level for Northern Europeans to, to get through the, those harsh um, Scandinavian winters is is so important and explains so much about kale and other and other dishes around the world. You know, we we, we overlooked that, so it was so refreshing to have that perspective. Um, Absolutely, and like so, he mentioned as you as you said, there was a couple things that he mentioned about like uh, you know how it survives and why it was so important because it survives frost and and i wanted to look into that a little deeper and it's really fascinating science because that was that was i had no idea about that so i'll give you an analogy like people even though it's freezing in the antarctic and the arctic and the water is well below i'm sorry the air temperature is well below you know freezing um because of the salt in the water it lowers the freezing point of of the water and and so it doesn't constantly freeze sugar does the same thing and so if you mix sugar and water it lowers the freezing temperature and so what happens is that when it starts getting cold outside plants such as kale convert um start converting uh, some of their energy into sugar uh which then protects the cell walls because what happens when it freezes uh the water in the cells freeze and puncture the uh cell walls which cause everything to die the 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 sugar water lowers it meaning they can survive uh, you know frosts or in some cases like carrots even frozen ground Uh, and that's why you know carrots are so sweet is because they're use it's their defense mechanism that we think is tasty Mm. and not only at a chemical level is it fascinating i think that they were able to figure this out and they were able to cultivate this plant in such a way that it basically sustained the Danes and, oh, well, not just the Danes, but many other Northern, Northern European folk people, <laughs> as it were, folk. Yeah, that's much better. Uh, through these times is, is, is quite extraordinary. It's, it really is an amazing plant yeah. to be able to do this. Uh, another thing I noticed um, sort of you were talking about with you know, the different kinds of applications, um, he mentioned that um, you know he, he doesn't really have much time for raw kale raw. Have you smelled raw kale? I mean, I live in Berkeley, and the whole place either smells like raw kale or smells like raw kale. raw kale or marijuana. He made the point like he doesn't like raw kale for a couple different reasons, and and it's true just from from the smell, but also from the nutritional point of view, the the it's a hardy plant that has a very very thick um, cell wall, and and it's incredibly nutritious for you. And we'll get onto that in a second, but basically, it's a two to one in uh, ratio of in favor of cooking versus raw consumption. Our our bodies just aren't built to break down that those cell walls in order to get all of, of the. The nutrients that are in there so you may look and it says yeah this is really good for you raw but your body you're you're not a cow and a cow. Oh, so you're not you're not able to extract all that leafy good right exactly so a cow can because it's got ah. multiple stomachs and it can and it processes it processes it processes it for us we need a little bit of heat and a little bit of water to break down that 
those cell walls to get the um, or a lot of heat. Is well, a lot of heat. Well, basically, yeah, exactly. A cooking process needs to happen. Um, yeah. The the only issue is if you o- overdo it, you you break it down too much, and and that way, um, mustard gas lies. Um, and I'm not making, yeah. I'm not being facetious. That's basically how you make mustard gas. Um, you, you synthesize, it's a synthesized version of the toxins that are released when you overcook leafy greens has been, was used to murder people in the first world war. So, you know, you have a legitimate reason not to like your grandmother's overdone collard greens and kale. Well, I mean, okay, so that's a, that's a potent negative <laughs> health consequence of the consumption of kale. But it, it has become almost impossibly popular to the point where I think we might be overdoing it because it, you know, as, as Asmus and I discussed, has been lauded for these almost superpower giving properties. But it's, it's not unlike many other superfood claims total bullshit there's there's some actually reasonable science here yeah no absolutely i mean it's got a a bunch of calcium about a third um that of milk it's got uh, crazy amounts of vitamin a and vitamin c um based on the volume um i think i read somewhere that i need to double check this um that it has more vitamin c than 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 an orange um by weight so like um but vitamin oh yeah i mean spinach does yeah exactly and most i mean like broccoli has more calcium in it than than a glass of milk so like you know these are places where you can move away from you know dependence on stuff that may not be great for you and like myself who you know i've said multiple times is lactose intolerant you know this is why uh green stuff is is, is good for me um and and yes vitamin a is great for your immune system and vitamin c you know is as well vitamin a is great for inflammation um you know so on and so forth but you mentioned sort of it's being touted as a super super food um and it does have, and I can never pronounce this word, uh, and I should know, given that Andrew, our brother who had cancer, was given a very strict diet that included a lot of these isothionates. Hey, I got it right. Isothiocyanates. Isothiocyanates. Sorry, I forgot the, si- the second si. It's something that basically there. It's a it's a product within uh, kale and a lot of other leafy greens um, that can block and even remove carcinogens from the body. Um, that being said, if you're eating three Big Macs along with your kale, you're sort of not allowing the kale to do its job. Um, so you know it's something that is good for you, but it's not like it's going to save you uh, from your from your your hedonistic ways if you're not going to change your diet. You know, I think that they popular food uh, echo chamber has taken these you know these very positive food uh, and and health benefits that that kale give you and amplified them to the nth mm-hmm. and i think that that's kind of done kale a little bit of damage because people have gone i have to consume this all the time i don't really care how i i haven't taken the time to understand and appreciate how to prepare it so therefore, they prepare it badly. It tastes horrendous. It gets a bad reputation. Where you know that's not really fair. It's not a fair. Do you? Well, you know, I, we haven't talked about this. Do you actually like kale? I don't mind kale when it's cooked. When it's mm. cooked well, and you and Asmus um, you know, touched upon it about why it works so well with meat and specifically pork. Um, and that's yeah. something that's been a, a not specifically not always kale, more just collard greens in general. In the deep south of the U.S., the most 
typical side dish uh, that you'll find at any gathering is co- is collard greens, um, you know, done with a ham hock, uh, slow roasted with vinegar and um, and some spices, uh, which is which is delicious. And like then you have, but that's th- th- I love that with you know some some good barbecue. I don't like. The, the the like the the fresh kale and, and it's kind of funny and I guess it's all about branding and marketing and and sort of where you sit on the mentality of what kale is. You have my area, Berkeley, where people will literally just eat a handful of kale with you know uh, roasted uh, you know sunflower seeds on top of it and call that a good meal. And then take the same thing and you'll go to the deep south and they'll be cooking it with, you know, mac and cheese and barbecue and it will be a, it won't be out of place there. They won't see it as somebody thinking you're trying to push health food on them. So yeah. it is a, a cultural understanding about what you do with it. And and I think it I, I enjoy it cooked. I don't enjoy it raw that much. No, me neither. I like I like it cooked. I like it braised especially. And as I mentioned in the conversation with Asmus, I love those stews with the like the Portuguese um, caldo verde with the pork, yeah, and you know, actually in that case it's sausage. It's a spicy sausage, it's almost like a linguiça. I like kale. I like. I, I didn't like the version I mentioned, the chunk of covered one. I just thought that was that was kind of weird. <laughs> well, but I think it's a. I love. I love the kale and kale derivatives. I like pretty much this entire family of of leafy vegetables. So I, I think that I'm going back to the nutritional aspects of it and also the very legitimate reasons for why we don't like it when it when it's overcooked and, and the breakdown and so the the eggy mustardy smells that you, you can get there what happens is if there's a middle ground between it being cooked and it being overcooked where you know the the nutrients can leach out of the uh, out of the vegetables which is not a a, a bad thing because it goes into the water and uh, people in the US and uh, I'm sure around other places around the world realized this in a, in a you know a long time ago that the the water that, that you're left with along with your ham hock or whatever else you're cooking in there uh, is basically like a supercharged um, health drink that tastes amazing and in america it's called pot liquor and it's the green leftover water with all the cooking stuff that's in there and you're keeping all the mm. if you drink that you're keeping all the nutrients that you wash out of the out of the green so you have to kind of complete the whole life cycle of the of the kale if you're just eating the, the cooked kale you're getting a fraction of of everything else so i also enjoy that as well not too much because it gets a little too watery but um i think that's a, a lovely way to sort of enjoy every aspect of it and definitely the uh, the stews i'm sure it's it's you know you're drinking liquid as well after that I don't think it deserves a reputation it has, frankly. I think we've completely <laughs> ruined this uh, poor vegetable that's just working hard and has worked hard for centuries to keep a lot of people alive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and, and so I got, like, I got three little facts here that I think perfectly sum up. Um, I don't know who did it and who's responsible for this, but the explosion basically since the mid nineties and it's got, and, it, and it's going at an accelerated pace into the two thousands, um, of, of kale being forced into the, into the forefront of, of dining. Um, one of the stats is, um, kale has seen a 400% increase on restaurant menus just in the last 10 years. 
And it's not just your salad bars, which are doing a lot, and obviously your healthy eating, but like places like uh, Morton Steakhouse and um, a couple other like big, like California Pizza Kitchen and people like that are now the big buyers of this stuff because they're like, eh, we should probably have something healthy on there. And that's where a lot of people are who are an older generation are getting introduced to it, whilst the younger generation are just buying into the fad um yeah the second point was uh there is actually a national kale day it's october 2nd here in the u.s which is a little sad and then uh it is sad uh bon appetit named uh last year the year of kale so uh Uh, you know what it passed me by (laughs) yeah exactly exactly it's one of those things that if you took away kale there are other greens that i could fill the void with i don't know why it's got this this supermodel complex and this like, you know, marketing team around it. But it's, it's one of those things that maybe, I don't know, what's going to be the next one. Um, Well, I, you know, again, I I would love to hear you guys, what you think. Do you like kale? Do you order it when it's on a menu? Uh, Do you cook with it? If so, how do you cook with it? Uh, What do you think is going to be the next uh, quote unquote superfood that isn't actually a superfood? Let us know uh, at uh, MasticationNTN on Twitter or uh, hit me up at at CubeDweller or at William Hunter on Twitter and tell us what you think about kale. And we will talk about it in the next episode, which is Adele. Hmm. Hmm. Lots of opportunity there. Yes. So So, so there you go. Quickly, uh, because we'll start planning the next episode quite soon. Let us know what you think we should do for L. That that's a that's a, there's a lot to talk about there. Yes, there really is. Anyway, let us know what you think we should do. Um, we will get uh, well. Yeah, we'll squeeze that episode in at least recording it before the end of February. But do get us those reception reception that feedback. <laughs> I think you need to go take a nap. <laughs> recommendations in as soon as you can. And until next time, folks. Eat well. 